Section 2 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, September 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne. The Bitterroot Forest Preserve by Richard U. Good, U.S. Geological Survey. As a result of inadequately framed laws, of the indifference of those charged with the execution of these laws, and the reckless greed of private enterprise, the forests of this country, which at one time were of vast and apparently inexhaustible proportions, are gradually wasting away. In 1860 there were about 20,000 sawmills, in 1870 about 26,000, and in 1880 about the same number. In 1891, however, the number was reduced to about 21,000. This reduction being largely due to the fact that the supply of available material was becoming scarcer and more inaccessible. Practically, it has been impossible to place any restraint upon those desiring to use the timber on the public lands for any purpose whatever. One law provides that citizens may cut and remove for building, agricultural, mining, and other domestic purposes any trees growing on mineral lands, while another permits residents to take timber from non-mineral lands and the land is usually held to be mineral or non-mineral as may suit the particular case. There are numerous other laws on the statute books under which timber may be taken under some show of legality, and in taking out the matured trees no attention has usually been given to the preservation of the young growth, and much that could not be used has been destroyed. Added to the above causes have been the forest fires started either through accident or design, so that the question has begun to assume such a serious aspect that prompt measures have been deemed necessary by those interested in the preservation of the forests. As a result of this agitation, a commission of the Natural Academy of Sciences was appointed in 1896 for the purpose of making an investigation of the subject. This commission submitted a report recommending the establishment of 13 forest reservations containing an aggregate area of 21,379,840 acres, or about 33 1,400 square miles. In conformity with this recommendation, President Cleveland, under date of February 22, 1897, set apart from entry or settlement the various areas as recommended, one being the Bitterroot Forest Preserve. Previous to this, there had already been established by executive proclamation, in various localities in the West, reservations comprising a total area of 17,500,000 acres, or about 27,300 square miles. Following immediately upon President Cleveland's proclamation, protests and complaints began to pour into the executive mansion, and when President McKinley came into office, he found himself in a somewhat embarrassing position, people having interests that were supposed to be detrimentally affected, claiming that the reservations had been made without thorough investigation and without consulting local requirements. In order to relieve the situation and to obtain time for further investigation, legislation was enacted providing for the survey, by the U.S. Geological Survey, of all lands heretofore designated as forest reserves, suspending President Cleveland's proclamation, except as to the reservations in California, and restoring all others to the public domain, but providing that such lands not otherwise disposed of before March 1, 1898, should again become subject to President Cleveland's proclamation. The function of the geological survey in the matter has been to ascertain and report on the facts relating to the forest reserves, so that intelligent action may be taken at the proper time as to the disposition of the whole question. 
There is probably no portion of the country exclusive of Alaska about which there was so little known as the territory included in the Bitterroot Reserve. It therefore became necessary to commence ab initio, as nothing whatever was available from a geographic standpoint. In considering questions of this kind, the value of reliable maps cannot be overestimated. The engineer, the geologist, the botanist, or anyone practically interested in any of the sciences, pure or applied, must have an accurate map as a basis for any thoroughly satisfactory investigation. And it thus came about that a large proportion of the amount appropriated for forestry surveys was expended in the preparation of topographic maps. The first step was to determine an astronomic position, measure a baseline, and expand a system of triangulation which would serve to furnish starting and control points. A location for the astronomic station was selected in the town of Hamilton, Montana, and the latitude and longitude of a masonry pier built at this point was determined. This work was performed by Mr. S. S. Gannett, who had the cooperation in the longitude work of Professor H. S. Pritchett, then of the Washington University at St. Louis, and now superintendent of the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey. The latitude was obtained by circumzenith observations on 56 pairs of stars, and the longitude by time observations and telegraphic exchange of clock signals with St. Louis on five nights. The probable error of the results obtained for this position was very small, so that it was certain within a few feet, the surface of the whole terrestrial globe being taken into consideration. The next process was to measure a baseline, one end of which would be connected with the astronomical pier. This line was measured along a tangent of the Northern Pacific Railroad. The total length of it was 5.33 miles, and the difference between the two measurements, after all corrections had been applied, was about one inch. That is, the probable error was about one to 338,000th part of the length. From this baseline was expanded a system of triangulation, which was executed with great care within certain limits, the triangles closing with an average error of two seconds. Beyond these, it was extended as a reconnaissance survey, but it is believed that the results obtained will be entirely sufficient for map-making purposes, although it will eventually be completed in a more refined way. The surveys were under the general direction of Mr. E.C. Bernard, who was personally in charge of a party engaged in the detailed mapping of the Bitterroot Valley and the adjacent mountains. He had assistants in charge of sub-parties, Messrs. J.B. Lippincott and H.S. Hack Bush. The bounding lines of this reserve are defined in part by the land lines of the public land system, none of which has been surveyed. For the purpose of locating these boundaries and also for establishing a basis from which other township and section lines could be projected, a special party under Mr. Hackbush was organized, and the results of this work were the determination and marking of the greater portion of the eastern boundary. The existing law relating to the subdivision of the public land requires that all linear measurements shall be made with a chain, a method which in the heavily timbered and mountainous country is very inaccurate and laborious. The men engaged in this class of work encountered many hardships, exhausting their physical strength, and were able to accomplish so little at a large expense that the question of feasibility of doing it by triangulation presented itself, and legislation has been proposed granting authority to the geological survey to locate township corners in the forest reserve by this method. The area of the Bitterroot Forest Reserve is about 6,500 square miles, about one-sixth being in Montana 
and the remaining portion in Idaho, the crest of the Bitterroot Mountains forming the boundary line between the two states in this locality, and the problem presented itself as to how a satisfactory map, for the purpose of illustrating the forestry features, could be prepared in the comparatively short field season that the weather conditions made possible. A reconnaissance map was decided upon, and the assistant, Mr. J. B. Lippicott, who executed the triangulation, was instructed to take with him a light, plane-table outfit for the purpose of making such a map. The map prepared does not lay claim to absolute accuracy, but it is considered sufficiently so to answer the purpose for which it was made, that is, to show the drainage system, the general character of the forest, etc. Contours were sketched to show the relative differences of elevation and slopes, and such elevations as were mathematically determined are given in figures. Also on the maps are indicated all trails and such wagon roads as exist. Mr. Lippincott was also instructed to secure numerous photographs and to obtain all possible information related to the forestry, the agricultural and mineral development, and the hydrography of the reserve, and many of the facts mentioned here are taken from his report. No exact definition of what might be properly included in the Bitterroot Mountain Range has ever been authoritatively determined, and it is very doubtful if sufficient information as to the physiography of the region exists to satisfactorily settle the question present. But there can be no doubt that all the reserve under consideration is within the limits of the Bitterroot Mountains. The conclusions of the writer in the matter are therefore to be taken as a broad generalization, to be modified as new facts are brought to light. First, with reference to the crest line. This may be considered as extending on the north from the vicinity of Lake Pend Doral to the low divide at the south end of the Bitterroot Valley, between the drainage of the Bitterroot Creek and that of the North Fork of the Salmon River. It is thought that these mountains should not include territory further southward, as it is considered desirable to classify the Bitterroot Range as entirely tributary to Pacific drainage. The continuation of the divide southward is drained to the eastward by the tributaries of the Missouri and should probably be included in the Rocky Mountain system. The northern portion of the Bitterroots, as thus defined, will include the Coeur d'Alene Mountains, as it is believed that the latter should not have a coordinate rank in the orography of this region, but should be assigned as a subordinate range of the Bitterroot system. If an attempt is made to differentiate these two ranges as independent systems, St. Regis Pass would serve to break the continuity. With the assumption of continuity, the eastern and northeastern limits of the system become very easily defined, that is, by the drainage of the Clark's Fork of the Columbia. It also seems very clear that the Salmon River should define the southern limits of these mountains. Just how far to the westward they should be considered as extending is not clear, but, as a preliminary classification, they may be determined as extending toward the Snake River plains until they lose their identity as mountain masses. This classification would assign the Clearwater Mountains to a secondary position in the same manner as the Coeur d'Alene have been subordinated. In detail, the principal drainage systems in and adjacent to these mountains are the Bitterroot, the Clearwater, and the Salmon Rivers. On the eastern slope is the Bitterroot River, one fork of which heads in the southeast corner of the reserve and flows northward through the fertile valleys of the same name. This valley separates the Rocky Mountains from the Bitterroot Range for a distance of about 100 miles, and at present has a good agricultural development. The main valley has a width of about 8 or 10 miles, its floor being comparatively level, 
composed of lacustrine deposits and very fertile under irrigation. When the drainage of the ancient lake occurred, there was left a heavy deposit of gravel and other sediment, through which the Bitterroot River is still cutting, and this process has shifted the floodplain back and forth, the result being that in some portions of the valley well-defined terraces have been carved out, corresponding to the older floodplains. The Bitterroot River joins the Missoula near the town of the same name, and ultimately finds an outlet in the Columbia River through Clark's Ford and Lake Pendorel. The streams constituting this drainage are remarkably straight and of a very steep gradient. Their tangent-like course is due primarily to glacial agencies, and they have not become modified on account of the extreme hardness of the rocks. They seek the straight and direct course and do not loiter amid the inhospitable granite to carve out for themselves gentle curves. In their haste to reach the valley, they leap and jump and are tossed from boulder to boulder, now lashing themselves into fleecy whiteness and now circling in emerald eddies as they plunge into some quiet pool where they find a moment's rest and gather strength for their ever downward course. The beds are filled with boulders and the sides of the canyons are precipitous and almost entirely bare of vegetation. These streams in their incessant activity are not only continually deepening their own beds in the attempt to reach base level, but are gradually working their way westward and capturing the tributaries of the less active affluence of the Clearwater, causing what is termed a migration of the divide. The shifting or migration of a divide is due to the weathering or wasting away of the crest line and may result from various causes. It seems probable that the main crest of the bitter roots has moved to the westward, owing to the fact that the highest points at present are all east of the crest line. Ward Peak is 8 miles to the east and about 800 feet higher than the general elevation of the divide, and St. Mary's and El Capitan Peaks each attain an elevation considerably higher than the divide. The portion of the reserve west of the summit of the Bitterroot Mountains, that portion in Idaho, is drained by the Clearwater and Salmon Rivers, about 90% of the territory being tributary to the former. Both of these streams are affluents of the Snake River, the Clearwater forming its junction at Lewiston, and the Salmon about 50 miles above to the southward. The Salmon has no important tributaries within the limits of the reserve. The Clearwater has four principal branches, the North Clearwater, the drainage area of which is largely north of the reserve, the Laksha or Middle Clearwater, which has its source about the base of St. Mary's and St. Joseph's Peaks, the main Clearwater, which drains the crest line from Lost Horse Pass to the Nez Pierce Pass, and the South Clearwater, or American River, the smallest of the four, whose drainage basin is in the southwestern portion of the reserve and extends within a few miles of the canyon of the Salmon River. It may be mentioned that the location of the Salmon River in this locality, as shown on the best existing maps, was found to be in error by from 10 to 15 miles. The streams constituting the Clearwater system flow generally in a western direction, and while the various affluents come from almost every direction, the general result is a series of secondary east and west ranges, which have no well-defined connection with the main range. The summits of the ridges are from 3,000 to 5,000 feet above their enclosing canyons, and each ridge rises to the same general elevation, so that were a surface laid through all the crest lines it would be of an undulating and moderately irregular character. We may therefore assume with some degree of certainty that the surface represents an old topographic form, an old plain or peneplain of denudation to which the country was reduced after a long period of erosion.
The rocks of the Bitterroot Mountains are granite and slates, the granite formation being the northward continuation of the enormous granite mass of southern Idaho, one of the largest in the United States. The slates, which are confined to the northern portion of the reserve, constitute a part of the belt formation, these rocks being the oldest stratified beds of the Rocky Mountain region. At some point since the Carboniferous, the great body of granite out of which this immense tract was carved was injected as a molten fluid of mass from below upward into the slates. This molten rock cooled slowly, as is shown by its coarseness of grain, and it must have cooled beneath a cover of slates, but this cover has been almost entirely removed, and the granite itself is deeply cut and dissected. At the time when volcanic activity was so predominant a feature in the Yellowstone Park, and the great lava flows of basalt dammed up the Snake and Columbia Rivers west of these mountains, the Bitterroot Valley was affected by tilting of the earth, so that the drainage was in many cases reversed, and the Bitterroot River was dammed back, forming the Bitterroot Lake, which was over 1,000 feet in depth. The overflowing waters of the lake gradually deepened the outlet and drained the lake, clearing out a large part of the sediment, a work not yet entirely accomplished, as the valley has not been cut down to its former level. The many lakes which nestle in the mountain amphitheaters and dot the plateaus are the result of glacial occupancy. In connection with the reconnaissance survey, a forest map was prepared, and it is published herewith. This map indicates the features of the forest in the broadest way, no attempt having been made to differentiate the species. Two zones of forest trees are native to the Montana slopes of the Bitterroot Reserve, the yellow pine and the subalpine fir, about one-fourth of the growth belonging to the former, which has a range from the lowest elevations to 5,800 feet, and three-fourths to the latter, which has a range from 4,200 feet to the highest altitudes. In the yellow pine zone, the yellow pine constitutes about 20% of the growth, and the hemlock spruce about 60%, the remaining 20% being distributed among other trees included in the zone, the lodgepole pine, white fir, and balsam fir. In the subalpine zone, the lodgepole pine constitutes by far the greatest portion, about 90%, of the growth, the remaining 10% being lyle tamarack, subalpine fir, white bark pine, white fir, Engelmann fir, and yew. Strictly speaking, only the yellow pine should be classed as commercial timber, as it alone is used for lumbering purposes. But on the map are included under this head the tamarack, the fir, and the white bark pine, as they may be applied to local purposes and have to that extent some commercial value. The yellow pine may be considered as constituting the entire growth, as shown on the map, between the Bitterroot Valley and the summit. The areas indicated as bare on the map are not wholly so, there being no portion of the Bitterroot Reserve entirely above the timberline, as everywhere, even on the loftiest summits and most precipitous ridges, especially on the southern slopes, are found straggling trees, but for the purpose of graphic illustration it has been represented as it has. Along the crest the growth is very sparse, but as the projecting spurs reach out to the westward and attain lower altitudes, they are usually covered with a forest growth, especially where their sides are too precipitous to admit of vegetation. There are on the western slopes of the Bitterroot Mountains three primary forest zones, namely the subalpine fir, the white pine, and the yellow pine. The subalpine fir zone extends from the crest altitudes to about 5,800 feet above sea level and includes the white bark pine, the lodgepole pine, the Engelmann spruce, 
the Lyle larch and the subalpine fir. The white pine zone has an approximate range from an altitude of 5,800 feet to about 2,000 feet and includes the white fir, the lodgepole pine, the Engelmann spruce, the cedar, and the yew. The yellow pine zone extends from elevations of 2,500 feet in the valleys to nearly 6,000 feet on the western and southern slopes and to 4,500 on the northern and eastern slopes and includes the yellow pine, the white fir, the hemlock spruce, the lodgepole pine, the western birch, the paper birch, the balm of Gilead poplar, and the aspen, besides various willows and alders. The distribution of the growth in the subalpine zone is about the same as in the similar zone east of the crest. The trees constituting the white pine zone are divided approximately into three equal portions, the white fir forming one portion, the cedar the second, and the lodgepole pine and Engelmann spruce the third. The species of trees occurring in the yellow pine zone may be divided approximately in two portions, the hemlock spruce constituting one, and the yellow pine and white fir the other, the former, however, being about three times more abundant than the latter. From the foregoing it will be observed that at least 98% of the trees in the reserve are coniferous, the exceptions being a few cottonwoods, maples, and various bushes bearing berries. The most striking feature presented by this map is the large portion of it that has been burned over, nearly all of it having been visited at various times by fires and at least one-third of the standing timber having been destroyed. The map indicates clearly the burned zones and an attempt has been made to show by percentage figures the proportion of the timber that has been completely destroyed. The foregoing illustration depicts a scene of which all Americans should be ashamed. The Aborigines held this region for many ages as a sacred trust transmitted from generation to generation. They recognized its beauty and utility and did not to impair the grandeur of the one or the permanence of the other. And what has the Anglo-Saxon done? As a community is visited by a devastating scourge, as a face is disfigured by some foul disease, so have the forests been visited and disfigured by him. Reaping where he has not sown, and failing to restore where he has destroyed, a noble heritage is slipping away through carelessness and cupidity. A hunter or traveler leaves his campfire unextinguished, a herder starts a fire in the fall, that the coarse grass may be burned and in the spring be replaced by a tender growth which is more nutritious to his flock. The prospector burns the undergrowth that the mineral-bearing rocks may be uncovered, the result being that thousands of acres are devastated. Illustrations are presenting showing groves of yellow pines, cedars, and firs that have been undisturbed by fire, an area that has been burned over, and a view of the crest of the Bitterroot Mountains. The question may suggest itself as to why the area included in the Bitterroot Reserve should be set aside from entry or settlement. Three distinct reasons exist from a forest standpoint, and there are other interests that would be incidentally subserved. First, the numerous streams which have their sources in the reserve furnish the water supply for the irrigation of the Bitterroot Valley on the east, and could be turned to a profitable account for a similar purpose to the westward. Indeed, it has been forcibly suggested that the possibility of irrigating the extensive plains of southwestern Washington exists only in the utilization of the Clearwater River for this purpose. There is at present considerable hydraulic mining in the Idaho portion of the reserve, and this industry is limited only by the amount of available water supply, which, according to the testimony of the miners, has been materially decreased since the forest fires have become so extensive. It is safe to say that fully 98% of the reserve is unfit for agricultural purposes on account of the altitude and irregularity of the surface. 
the only possibilities in this respect, or even for grazing, are in the numerous alpine meadows, but it would be a dangerous experiment either to disturb the surface of these meadows with a plow, or to allow cattle to occupy them extensively, as in either case they would lose their peculiar sponge-like character, which makes possible the retention of the water deposit. Thus it seems clear that the reservation, if it were administered in such a manner as to prevent, or at least check forest fires, and keep out herds of cattle and sheep, would have a beneficial effect on the regimen of the streams. Second, an important purpose to be subserved would be the prevention of the injudicious cutting of trees over large areas. It is not proposed to prohibit cutting to a sufficient extent to meet necessary demands, but to have it done under proper supervision, so that the young and immature growth may be protected, and the production utilized in an economical manner. In other words, it is desired to provide for the handling of the tree crop with the same prudence and foresight as any other crop would be looked after. Third, large areas have been burned over, and it is a debt due to posterity that the damage be repaired. This end can be accomplished only by a systematic effort under proper direction. The Yellowstone National Park and the Yosemite Park have for several years past been patrolled by troops of cavalry of the U.S. Army, who have not only been able to keep watch on the class of people to whom these fires are usually traceable, but, by going promptly to localities where smoke is visible, have been able to extinguish with little exertion fires which, if left alone, would in short while have devastated large areas. In some European countries it has been found necessary in order to produce certain results in the reforestation to transport soil in baskets by the hands of men to form a new covering for the naked rock, so that vegetation may be re-established. It is not probable that we shall ever be reduced to such extremities in this country, but we should resist all influences that have a tendency to produce such a condition. Incidentally, the game will be protected and the scenery preserved or restored to its original beauty. This section is the natural home of the moose, elk, bear, deer, mountain goat, and mountain sheep, but during the past season scarcely any of the above were encountered and very little sign of their presence was observed. The deer are killed in large numbers by commercial hunters to bait bear traps. In one locality, 120 bears were trapped in two seasons, and it is considered a conservative estimate that for each bear secured, 1,000 pounds of game meat is ordinarily used. The elk and the moose are near exterminated, and the region which once attracted sportsmen from all portions of the country, and also from Europe, has almost completely lost its attraction as a hunting ground. End of section 2